Welcome to the first episode of Life Behind Bars, the Daily Beast's new podcast about the world's most important bartenders and their effect on drinking culture. I'm Noah Rothbaum, the site's chief cocktail correspondent. Joining me today is my colleague and co-host Dave Wondrich, our senior drinks columnist. Welcome. Uh, this will be fun, I hope. Uh, <laughs> we've got lots to talk about, lots of bartenders, and uh, we need them more than ever. <laughs> I think... I mean, it's only appropriate that we're starting a podcast about the world's most important bartenders that we should start with, of course, Jerry Thomas, uh, the professor. Uh, Jerry Thomas, he wasn't the first famous American bartender, but he was the most famous bartender of the 19th century. He's the guy who wrote the first cocktail book, laid out all the different types of drinks that we're still drinking today in increasing quantities. I should add, <laughs> and uh, is uh, just uh, an archetypical American life, a colorful character, a sporting sporting life figure, and uh, a sort of a patron saint of the American bartender. And absolutely, and I think if anything, almost now, you know, uh, the, the patron bartender for for this new rebirth of the cocktail. So many of the modern, you know, craft cocktail bartenders take inspiration recipes from from jerry thomas uh even their tattoos come from illustrations in in his book the i guess what would you prefer calling it the how to mix drinks well it had about three different titles right. <laughs> you know jerry <laughs> thomas was not the most disciplined of men so uh how to mix drinks the bartender's guide the bon vivant's companion my favorite title that one i like a lot too yeah. that was pretty good that sort of says but it uh you know, and he he was he was definitely he is the patron for those guys, but he could, as we'll see, also be the patron saint for dive bars and arcade <laughs> bars and just about any kind of American right. bar. He uh, he was a complicated guy. Well, and that first the the first edition of the book comes out in 1862. Is that absolutely? Yeah. And and that and and it's kind of funny. I mean, we I've gotten tricked up by this before in writing. It's like it's his book, and then they were the publisher was kind of, I guess, maybe dubious about whether or not it would work out. So they slapped on somebody else's book, right, to the back of it. It's like it's like two books, two books in one. Yeah, yeah. They added a uh, maybe that's why they called it the Bon Vivant's Companion because they added a book on how to make liqueurs, you know, and it's just this crazy distilling book added to the end. And uh, the, 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 the cocktail part, the, the how to mix drinks part, even that, they got Jerry Thomas to that late. They had already copyrighted it three years earlier, but never published it because I think they realized they needed a bartender involved. <laughs> and they finally found a good one and, and, and put it out. And it's, I guess it was one of the Dick and Fitzgerald books, the, the original edition. Is that? Yeah, absolutely. Dick and Fitzgerald, New York publisher, who uh, put out all kinds of how-to manuals, uh, reputable and disreputable. Uh, of every possible kind. I'm envisioning kind of like the ad in the back of a comic book for x-ray glasses. And, you know, oh, yeah. uh, they would be like, how to mix drinks, you yeah. know, uh, expert bartender. 101, you know, great jokes. They had all kinds <laughs> of joke books and they had all kinds of stuff. Uh, well, it, it kind of, that kind of makes sense for Jerry Thomas because it was, it was as you, as you were saying before, is more than just bartending, but this whole kind of the sporting life, you know, the gambling, the bookmaking. Oh, yeah. I mean, Jerry Thomas, as he, as he said in one interview, uh, he witnessed 22 bare-knuckle boxing matches. Wow. Those things were highly illegal. They were hard to get to. They were always held in 
out of the way places. And yet, you know, he was such a sport. Uh, he did that. He owned a racehorse, a very slow racehorse, but a racehorse nonetheless. He did all kinds of things like that. You know, he was, uh, they were always running uh, gambling out of his bar among a, among a lot, of, a lot of other things. There was even like kind of like a shooting gallery kind Let, of thing. Let's do a little just uh, outline of his life so everybody can uh, can hear where he's from. And then we'll talk about the shooting gallery because uh, shooting gallery with alcohol combined. A little teaser. It's a teaser. little teaser. As you yeah. can tell, I'm very excited to get yeah. to that part. But, uh, <laughs> Jerry Thomas is born to uh, a Revolutionary War vet, as far as we can tell, uh, in uh, 1830, or maybe the grandson of a Revolutionary War vet. But uh, this you know, old American family, at least as old as America was, uh, uh, up in upstate New York on Lake Erie in uh, the day before Halloween, 1830. And by the time he was about 12, the family had moved to New Haven, Connecticut, uh, they had some kind of ties to the hotel keeping business. He had three brothers, and one of them was working in a, in a hotel there. And evidently, as a teenager, he'd already started behind the bar, maybe barbacking and uh, tending bar occasionally. But uh, around 1847, when he was 17, he ran off to sea. You know, New Haven was a big port, and uh, that was the most exciting thing a young man could do sure. at the time. Uh, it was a very dangerous job, but it was also uh, meant excitement and independence. And, and at that time, people were drinking, I guess, mostly punch. Punch, cocktails, mint juleps were very popular, uh, even up in the north. And uh, simple cocktails, you know, basically from the old-fashioned school without the fruit, just really, really plain. Whiskey, spirit. Yeah, more like Holland gin, Dutch gin, brandy, some whiskey. Whiskey wasn't so popular back then. It was just come, you know, as a as a mixing yeah. spirit. It was just starting to come into its own. And then, like that sort of Holland gin, sugar, water, bitters. bitters yeah. That's it. So he's got this little bit of bar experience, yeah. and as a sailor, he evidently learned a bunch of other drinks <laughs> because sailors at the time uh, were uh, known for uh, improvisation because you had to, you know, you're at sea for months. And, and a love of spirits. And right? a love of spirits. So <laughs> they made all kinds of crazy sailors co uh, combinations. And uh, he sails, you know, for a couple of years. And then uh, in 1849, his ship, the Ann Smith, uh, sails around the bottom of South America in winter, which is terrifying, you know, for, especially for the sailors who have to go up uh, on the masts and rigs, you know, uh, rig in, reef in sails and all that. Sitting in the crow's nest. Yeah. And you're... Your your ships maybe you know thirty feet wide and you're a hundred feet up and uh, and and it's rolling about uh, forty five degrees in either <laughs> direction. Yeah, it's terrifying. So he did that and his ship calls in in San Francisco. But this is eighteen forty nine uh, in, in November eighteen forty nine. So he does what everybody else does and immediately deserts the ship and runs off to be a gold miner. Sure, panning for gold. Yeah, panning for gold. The, the San Francisco was harbor was full of abandoned ships. Uh, every, every every crewman who got there was like, a sailor, you know, I'm kind of tired of being a sailor. Kitchen empty of any kind of bowl, pot. Yeah, uh, nothing. You know, any dish that could use to the yep. use. <laughs> that's right. No that's colanders right. to be found anywhere, That's I right. Guess. A strip bear, I, I swear, yeah. So uh, he does that, and he's up in the gold fields, and he evidently doesn't like that very much uh, because it turns out it's really hard work and you never make any money. So he starts tending bar he starts running a minstrel show which was the popular entertainment of the day pretty uh 
un PC today with reason, Absolutely. but, uh, you know, it was, it was the rock and roll of its day. So he manages that for a bit and then, uh, takes a, a boat down to San Francisco from the gold fields and the boat, uh, it gets uh, infected with cholera and he's like one of two, maybe one or two survivors of the boat, you know, so he's almost dead at age, you know, 19 or 20. This is like a Warner Herzog. Movie. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, it's just the Sacramento river, you know, right, it's, right. it's not even like some weird <laughs> South American the river. Amazon. Yeah, nothing. no, it's just like, but it was, you know, times, times were, uh, were different. I, then. I love that he survived his three masted, you know, sailing yeah, trip around yeah. like the world, <laughs> but the trip from, you know, the gold fields down to San Francisco almost kills almost him. Almost kills him. I know. It's amazing. Right. So, uh, he tends bar for a while in San Francisco along around this, uh, at, uh, this place, the Illinois House, which uh, burned down several times. So he was there for a little bit. Uh, clearly, his bartending experience uh, was put to good use. I mean, they were practically drafting people as bartenders in San Francisco. And that was what, the, the sort of the height of the so-called Barbary Coast. Yeah, it was really when it was getting built, and it was wild. San Francisco was absolutely nuts then. People from all over the world were pouring in. They had like miners from China pouring in with prefabricated houses. Wow. You know, it was all Chile, uh, Mexico, France, uh, everywhere, everywhere. And these aren't, you know, Google engineers and, you know. No, they're uh, not. <laughs> <laughs> they're, uh, yeah, they're, they're somewhat They're not like, you know, yeah. angel investors, yeah. and, you know. Well, they had people like that too came, you know, and those people were living in tents. And, you know, it was like the whole world rushed in, as they said. And uh, so he does that. The upshot is in uh, around 1851, he's got $16,000 in gold. Whoa. And he's 21 years old. $16,000 then was a lot of money. And in gold. And in gold. You know, so that that was like the equivalent of like something like $250,000, $300,000. Well, they, they always say, right, the people who were panning for the gold never made any money. But the people selling the shovels, the pans... The cocktail. The cocktails at a dollar a throw when back east they were about 12 cents, you know. And, and I, I know uh, things like, you know, fancy champagnes, uh, brandies, altos. Oh, yeah. I mean, all available in the middle of nowhere. These gold fields suddenly, you know, have fully stocked parts. Yeah, you could get Piper Heidzik, but not eggs. Right. <laughs> you know, they had their like priorities that. right. Yeah, they had their I mean, priorities uh, right. Uh, unless maybe you were making yeah. like some kind of fizz, but yeah. that's... Uh, but the luxury goods, no problem. It was right. the regular stuff. You know, you'd have to send, some people would send their shirts out to Hawaii to be washed. Unbelievable. Because there was nobody doing laundry. You know? Who had time to do laundry yeah. when you're panning for gold? Exactly. Bait? So the gold rush was just, it was it was the damnedest thing. He uh, goes home over the overland route across through Mexico and takes a steamship on the other side, almost getting lynched in the process. Because according to uh, some stories about him at the time, he uh, was maybe a little inebriated one day in Mexico and rode into a church on his horse to light his cigar at the altar candles. And the uh, worshipers were not very happy about that. Uh, they, I don't know why they found that somewhat disrespectful and uh, chased him out. And uh, the British consul had to intervene to, 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 to protect his life. And, and he's carrying the $16,000 in yeah. gold, I imagine, yeah. Yeah, in, yeah, yeah. in well, his saddlebag. Yeah. yeah, you're not going to put it anywhere else. So uh, by, by the time he got to New York, he had all this money. He opened a bar uh, underneath P.T. Barnum's museum, which is kind of crazy. That was the most popular venue in, in New York. And everybody went there. And he, he and a, a friend George Earl, who was an artist. And it turns out Jerry Thomas was an artist too. He painted and drew. So they opened this bar underneath, the saloon underneath 
P.T. Barnum's. And then, uh, as he said later, uh, I spent some time walking around in exclusive company. <laughs> Which, <laughs> uh, he, uh, the, at the end of that time, he was broke. And that was about, you know, maybe six months. So uh, the exclusive company, uh, I think, was probably just all gamblers. From all too high. What did yeah. P.T. Borgham say? A sucker's born every minute. Yeah, so, and, uh, uh, you know, and he, Jerry Thomas was several suckers rolled in one. <laughs> but, you know, he had a good time. Everybody liked him. When, and when he came back from San Francisco, did he have with him his his, his supposed legendary solid gold bar tools? Or, or I don't think so, no. I, th- I think that came later. Uh, but, you know. We don't know. Right. No trace has ever been found of these 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 legendary gold or some say gold, mostly solid silver, like this this heavy four thousand dollar bar kit. Uh, I would like to find a piece of that. When he goes broke in New York, he travels around the country for a while, uh, washes up in New Haven with his brothers tending bar at uh, one of their places across from the train station for for a year or two, and then goes walk, walk about again. Uh, He's at the Metropolitan. Uh, he's at the uh, rather the Planters House in St. Louis, the where where Charles Dickens stayed. It's the fanciest uh, hotel in the West. He's uh, you know at uh, in New Orleans. He's up and down the Mississippi. He's in Chicago. Seems like it seems like he he purposely hit all these different drinking towns. Like, yeah, so the, I mean, still some of the best drinking cities. Oh, yeah. in oh, the yeah. world today. But it's yeah, very no, no coincidence that he doesn't like roll up in like Topeka or something. Yeah, he 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 knew where he was going to get business. And you know, then and as now, a bartender, a good bartender, can always get work. A skilled bartender is a portable. That's a portable job. So he did that for a while, and then uh, went back to New York uh, in 1858 and worked at the fancy Metropolitan Hotel, which was where all the uh, actors hung out. You know, it was the it was the theatrical hotel, and everybody went to his bar. Uh, he had very famous clientele, and uh, people always sent him things. Uh, when uh, the federal government busted uh, John Brown. Uh, you know, at Harper's Ferry, who was getting ready to uh, lead a slave revolt. One of the people there sent him one of the spears that John Brown was planning to arm the slaves huh. with, for instance, to hang behind the bar. Right. You know, it's like any kind of souvenir would right. get sent to him. Sure. I'm imagining sort of like the, the, the ceiling at the 21 Club. Exactly. Co- covered with God knows. Yeah. You know, all Bits types and of, pieces. Yeah, yeah. sure. And uh, so he, he was already doing that. In 1859... Uh, the my favorite episode in his life happened when one of the uh people staying at the hotel was this guy Thaddeus Lowe from New England who was uh, a specialist in hot air balloons of course and Thaddeus Lowe uh <laughs> had this huge scheme to build an enormous hot air balloon with a uh steel gondola underneath and a steam engine and a propeller Whoa. and uh this thing was going to be like 250 feet high and it was, he was going to sail across across the Atlantic in it and Jerry Thomas was recruited as one of the crew because, you know, a bartender and a sailor. Who better? I mean, who better? Yeah. You know, he had he had multiple skills. And according to uh, one of uh, one of uh, Jerry Thomas's friends, uh, he went out and bought a sealskin outfit to protect against the cold of the upper atmosphere and a huge knife to fight sharks in case they had to put down in the water. And this, the whole thing, he was all ready to go. And uh, they tried to inflate it with natural gas from the gaslight system in New York. And there wasn't enough gas in the city. It kind of got like half inflated and then just slowly leaked out. And that was the end of that. Uh, I kind of love <laughs> the image of, of Jerry Thomas in his seal suit and his 
giant, you know, crocodile Dundee knife standing there in front of the half filled. I know. Uh, Can you imagine? <laughs> I, I wish somebody had taken photographs. Exactly. In uh, 1860, he crosses the Atlantic anyway, but by boat for the world's first uh, international uh, heavyweight fight. Heenan versus Sayers in outside of London. Also illegal. Knockdown drag out fight that goes on for God knows how many rounds and is just an incredibly bloody affair. Uh, and then uh, he had known Heenan, the uh, the American guy, uh, in uh, the Goldfields, oh. and, and uh, the guy he was also from upstate New York. They had a lot in common, so they'd known each other back then. So he went to support him. Did, did Heenan ultimately win? Or? I think it was a draw, if I recall, because uh, they were both too beaten up right, to, right. to really do anything. <laughs> and then the police came. Right. So it was like after like you know. They're both winners, rounds. both winners. Yeah, yeah, both winners, you know. Well, we'll, we'll declare it a tie. Yeah. Now. Civil War breaks out. Well, 1862, he puts out his book. We talked about that. Civil War breaks out. Suddenly, he's posted to California. The owners of his hotel, the Metropolitan, are opening another one in uh, in San Francisco, the Occidental Hotel, and he goes there. Uh, and uh, at this point, he writes another book, The Portrait Gallery of Eminent Barkeepers, which he uh, self-published. The first one he didn't have any he didn't get royalties for, so he figured he'd fix that. Right. But what happens is the publisher is him, and he moves around too much. Uh, he ends up in Virginia City, Nevada, which burns to the ground. Uh, as far as I could, my biggest guess is that's what happened to all the books because there's no copy uh, has ever turned up. Of ever. This. There's a long review for the book telling what's in it in the. Uh, in the San Francisco paper and uh, some of the recipes got plagiarized by another book, but uh, the original book. Well, if anybody's out knows? there and they have the yeah. book, like we'd love to see it. Illustrated by the professor. Of course. With I'd expect nothing else. Biographies of all the famous bartenders of his day, which nobody else has ever done. Unbelievable. At the time, nobody else did. Uh, so uh, it's just a, it's a book that I would personally kill for. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, Maybe I wouldn't kill everybody for it, but uh, <laughs> a fair number of people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> depends on who they are. And then, like in San Francisco too, but the earthquake is yeah, is earthquake not that, and fire. Yeah, it's not that much longer. I mean, it's only a few no. years later. Yeah, and if you know, it had been lying around in attics, yeah. etc. What what is it like? Uh, cocktail William Cocktail Boothby's books. Yeah, like, uh, the, the plates burned up. The plates. So, so there are very few mm -hmm. copies of that yeah. one left. So it's. I mean, it's not. You know, the scarcity is... It's not impossible. No, it's, no yeah. for sure. And it's kind of funny that it's not in any... Because the, the Bon Vivant's Companion shows up. I think Harvard has a copy. Oh, yeah. Like, it's in all of these different... Because that was a legitimate publisher who, you know, sent things around. Sure. And had a distribution network. I think Thomas was going to sell this himself at the bar. And uh, it just, you know, it, it it didn't make it. But even... And even the, the, the Bon Vivant's Companion, I know... There are all types of permutations and, and different editions with different colors and different, mm -hmm. you know, I guess. Different prices on the cover. There were three editions of it. Uh, and I've heard that the idea that like one theory about all the different covers is that, you know, that, you know, Greg from uh, Greg Bone from Mud Puddle, who, who does a obviously a edition now that mm -hmm. his idea was that. They they would you know run out of you know red leather or whatever and they just throw on whatever they whatever had whatever they had fair it enough it wasn't you know yeah it wasn't some kind of publicity stunt it was more like yeah who cares like we'll use blue next week we'll use red tomorrow yeah, we'll, green right I've seen it if, in green red and, and blue <laughs> and I think even in yellow yeah this wasn't like a prestige yeah. public publishing no. outfit 
they were they were pretty grub street about things and uh i think they just yeah used what they had well and it's also it's the two books it's kind of amazing because the second book there's not a single copy available yeah. that nobody ever seen yeah meanwhile his first book never really goes out of print like there's there are all these editions that yeah up through up until about 1905 1910 there are editions the herbert ashbury of the, yeah and then in 1928 again and then you know recent years there have been a lot it was out of print for a while uh, when dale DeGroff uh, was setting up the bar at the rainbow room in the 1980s his boss joe baum told him to uh to go get a book by the book by Jerry Thomas to figure out how to do a bar without sour mix or anything and Dale didn't realize it was out of print you know he didn't know this book uh, no internet at the time yeah no, no internet bartenders weren't really scholarly so he had to look all over until he found you know a used copy at Brentano's or something amazing after after the civil war uh Jerry Thomas owns his own bar in New York at uh, 22nd Street and Broadway, the building is still standing. Now it's a restoration hardware, which is kind of funny. Uh, and he owns that and then uh, moves uptown uh, for, you know, almost 10 years. He and his brother, uh, George, who was the uh, sensible man in the operation, are running these bars. And at first, it's a regular bar, but with lots and lots of pictures. He likes pictures, you know, because he was an artist. And so it's a portrait gallery. Uh, and not that uncommon for no, the time. I mean, like the no. Hoffman House has that famous Bouguereau painting above the bar. I mean, exactly. Like, there's definitely just, you know, just as, you know, sometimes people now, street art or whatever kind of art is yeah. used to pull in people, same kind of difference. It's also like you look at McSorley's, the walls are covered oh. with stuff. He had one of those bars and it was a very popular one. People would come in to see their caricatures. Ulysses S. Grant would go in to see his caricature. I put that in quotations because uh, he was known to like a glass of whiskey. And uh, I'm sure, you know, Jerry Thomas hooked him up fine. In 1872, he loses his lease because of New York real estate and moves up Broadway towards 30th Street, uh, uh, 30th and 31st. And there he has a really big bar. And, and at that time, that's pretty... That's pretty far north, yeah. Right, I mean, because when the Empire yeah. State Building goes up in... in I don't know, in, in 1920s, in, yeah. I mean, I remember people, you know, were like, that's ridiculous. Nobody's going to have their office that far uptown, yeah. you know. that. So even then, it's... Even then, yeah. And, and in, in the, you know, 1870s, that was Times Square was kind of the northern limit of, of business. So it was pretty mo pretty close up there. Uh, he was, you know, just a couple blocks down from the opera, which was there. So it was a fancy part of town. And he builds this huge bar with uh, paintings of uh, two-story high paintings of him mixing drinks on the walls. Unbelievable. Because it's, it's got this big two-story atrium. And there's musical entertainment there. Uh, pool tables. He puts in pool tables. Then in the basement, he puts in a bowling alley. Then the stroke of genius that we've all been waiting for, the shooting gallery. And the way the shooting gallery worked, it had electricity, for one thing, which was unusual. So if you hit the bullseye, there would be an electric light would flash. Wow. Uh, but you didn't just get a gun and get to shoot. They had young women down there who you had to try to beat. They would shoot against you. And so the male, you know, the male patronage did not want to be beaten by the women. So they would put put their quarters down and down and down. And it was a good Meanwhile, source of Meanwhile, they're getting drunker and drunker. Exactly. And they can't hit a damn right. thing. And the women are trained professionals who know how to shoot. And it's just, it's a great racket. And, you know, and it's, they've got like three different distances. Put it, put it this way. It's as different from the modern speakeasy type bars, you know, as you could possibly imagine. It's much closer to something like... Uh, uh, Barcade, this New York bar that has uh, 
all, all kinds of arcade games in it. You know, or, or like one of these like upscale bowling alleys, like a suburban mall. Exactly. Or exactly. With... Yeah. This massive entertainment bar with Jerry Thomas presiding, but uh, so there's so much for the, the the supposed sanctity of the exact craft cocktail. Bar. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't about the craft cocktails. <laughs> no, no rules posted at this no, bar. No, 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 it was uh, uh, it was all out all the time, right. but uh, that went broke too. Uh, because he had as he liked to bet on the stock market. He had a clientele of stockbrokers who gave him tips, and he was dumb enough to put money on those tips. And so that was that. Finally, was the end of that. And then, for the next couple of years, he moved around, opening these little bars, always running uh, bookmaking operations out of them uh, downtown in Greenwich Village. Uh, in 1882, he went really broke and had to sell all of his picture collection which was sad. And then he tended bar for other people for a couple of years and then died in, uh, on December 14th, 1885, uh, you know, age 55, a, a, a pretty young man. Yeah. Even for then, even for then. Yeah. But, uh, so that was, it was, uh, it was a, a sad end to a, to a hell of a life. From what I remember, his death wasn't, I mean, it wasn't particularly re- remarked or remembered. Oh, there, there, or there, was there, it? Yeah, it was, was actually. It? Even there were, then. There were lots of articles. He was, he was a famous American, you know. Uh, every major newspaper had a notice. Uh, some of the New York ones uh, wrote, you know, many of them, most of them ran fairly lengthy, very inaccurate obituaries. Uh, but the New York World, a week later, took the time to send a reporter around to people who knew him. And that's where the balloon story comes from, was from his uh, so-called side partner, as they called it, you know, his fellow bartender at the Metropolitan Hotel, uh, who had gone on to be uh, famous in his own right, this guy Ed Gilmore, and also rich because he didn't gamble on anything. Uh, but Ed Gilmore, you know, told a lot of stories about Jerry Thomas, and uh, and he's buried in uh, in, in, in Woodlawn in, Cemetery, in Woodlawn. yeah, in in New York, uh, up in the Bronx, in a nice, beautiful old cemetery. He's got a little plot there. I've always sort of wondered. I mean, they're always. I mean, it's, there's so much, there's so many stories that he told about himself and that other people told, uh, you know, one, you know, uh, some, some descriptions of him. He has like a pet rat. He had, he had a pair of pet rats that uh, he kept on his shoulders, white rats. Of course. And uh, else would while he was that? behind the bar. Sure. Uh, this was before the health department. I was going to say, I'm not, yeah. I'm not sure the New York City Health Department yeah. signed no. off on that today. I think they'll close you for vermin. <laughs> yeah. On your person. Whether or not it's a... uh, And they would frolic around, and if they fall off, he'd pick them up and put them back, and they'd climb over his bowler hat, and, uh, you know, the the, the rats just hung out. (laughs) Would he take the rats off when he was doing the Blue Blazers? Uh, I wonder. Yeah, which is... You know, it's just, yeah, flaming whiskey poured back and forth. Uh, And and according to, I mean, the illustration in the book, he's... There's one where someone's throwing the flaming whiskey over their head and catching it behind them, which... I, I don't know if anybody's been daring enough to master that. Uh, that that we we tried that. Uh, uh, Wayne Curtis, another uh, of our beast writers, sure. uh, uh, and I tried that at Tales of the Cocktail uh, a, a couple of years ago. I put on some protective gear and uh, attempted to do this, and uh, it was um, not successful. I mean, whether or not he actually was able to throw it over his head, I think that it, it doesn't even matter. I think that so sums up. Jerry Thomas's kind oh, yeah. of personality and yeah. the fact that you know, uh, you know, so over the top. I mean, his friends said you know he was just uh, he was the best bartender they'd ever seen. 
because uh, th- that he was uh, a genial, pleasant guy. You know, he wasn't uh, he wasn't a- an egomaniac in the same way as as some people. You know, he wasn't uh, fragile. He, he but he 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 liked to show off. He liked to have fun. Sure, he had uh, the big paintings of him. He also had a statue of him uh, when he walked into his bar making a blue blazer. So, <laughs> well, I mean, I was going to say that he was fairly modest. Even the nickname, the professor, you know, where, yeah. where in that time, you know, you have the, you know all these different other bartenders calling themselves the most amazing names. Yeah, from, yeah. You know, cocktail booth, booth, yeah. To uh, William, the uh, only William, the, the only William that you would ever want to know, yeah, yeah. Uh, in Park Row. So I think it's also interesting how, you know, uh, you know, thanks to your book, you know, imbibe, you know, won the James Beard Award, um, uh, you know, had amazing influence on on our current generation of cocktail bartenders. And do you think that he would? Do you think he would like where bartending is today, like the the types of bars that that we now drink in? Or I think he would like that uh, he's remembered today, right? <laughs> you know, and uh, yeah, maybe a little bit too staid. Yeah, know? I think some of them would be a little too staid. Yeah. Again, you know, he was a sailor. He was right. uh, he was an old time raconteur. He was a right. a, a talker and uh, and uh, and a carrier on his his clientele included everybody from the prince of wales to uh you know politicians and uh actors and all all these famous types and so i mean so much of the the sporting life i mean the drinks were just mm-hmm. one part of the sporting life exactly. i think so much of that we've lost over that. i mean that there's no there's no gambling there's no bookmaking really. there's no I mean, we we don't even talk about sports in most of these bars, let alone the fact that boxing would be there. Yeah, not in craft cocktail bars. <laughs> I know. Uh, you know, that's starting to change, though. I think we're starting to kind of bring the skills that were rediscovered and perfected in the craft bars. We're starting to fold that back into regular bars, you know, saying, OK, you can have a, a big buck hunter game in your bar and still make a good cocktail right you know there's there's nothing there's no law that says you can't well i I mean it's one of these things i think it's sort of like uh as all these distillers have gotten a lot less precious about their whiskey yeah they've sort of come to realize like if you're going to make a bourbon and coke you might as well use good bourbon well at least it supports the supports the brand you know if if you're gonna play big buck hunter you might as well have a good cocktail yeah Yeah, a good cocktail is better than a bad cocktail exactly you don't have to just because you're playing Big Buck Hunter doesn't mean you deserve a bad drink. <laughs> you go to like the Occidental in Denver; they've got that, and they've got tater tots and all the bar stuff. But they've also got good drinks. Yeah, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's a beautiful thing, you know. And there were, I mean, there were tons of other famous bartenders around. Oh, yeah. Jerry Thomas, but his name has gotten to be so, you know, still well, famous again, and it really he did something. You know, he did something first. Yeah, and. Uh, Everybody liked him, you know. He was he was a a colorful character. He was he was a maybe a bit out of control sometimes, <laughs> but uh, he, fun, he, fun, yeah, uh, fun. You know, his, his was bar was it. everybody. It, it was one of the places you had to go when you were in New York. Right, you had to stop in at Jerry Thomas's. You Absolutely, know? and uh, and that wasn't you know you could get a good cocktail anywhere. I think it was uh, just to, just to see Jerry. Well, I kind of I kind of love the idea that you could go to P.T. Barnum's museum, yeah. of oddities. You know, see mm-hmm. all the crazy stuff that he had, and 
fake, real, whatever, it doesn't matter, and then go downstairs and have a cocktail from Jerry Thomas. Yeah. And perhaps place a bet on the ponies yeah. that day. Yeah. I mean, that sounds great, you know. Well, and his bar on 30th, I guess, was, was pretty fairly close to where Madison Square Garden was. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I obviously know that was not by accident. No, <laughs> no it was the sporting district. And, yeah. uh, you know, he was, uh, his, his, his bar up there was, uh, it was the sporting headquarters of all sporting headquarters. He had the most, the most prominent bookmakers, uh, uh, ran book out of there on not just on horses on elections on shooting matches on anything you could bet on you know they were all there was you could always you could always put some money down that uh, you could find action there yeah, absolutely exactly. no matter the season yeah there was always somebody well and what is there one is there of of his drinks do you think there's one that sort of stands out that that well you know i, I kind of like his plain whiskey cocktail with uh, uh whiskey bitters uh, sugar and just a splash of curacao Stir it up, strain it into a glass, and uh, clink. Thank you for joining us for the first episode of Life Behind Bars, the Daily Beast's new podcast. Look out for new episodes on other famous and influential bartenders in history. Cheers. Thanks very much. Cheers. Cheers.